Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. 1 Corinthians 10.16 And this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So he's speaking of what we're doing. He's speaking of the, what, what Jesus did symbolically at the Last Supper, which was a, the, the forerunner of the communion that we take. And, but I want to get, not, don't want to get real, real technical, but I do want a little bit. The, the, the word here that is translated communion, both places here in, the, um, in verse 16, is the Greek word koinonia, which this is the formal definition of koinonia. And all of these words, you will see this um, translated, koinonia or some form of koinonia, translated as all of these in different parts of the Bible. It can mean fellowship, can mean association, community, communion, joint participation, intercourse, and partnership. Now what I want to look at first is, is the, the partnership aspect of this. And the first place we, we see this word occur in, in the New Testament is in Acts. Acts 2, verse 42, and I want to go there for just a second. Acts 2, 42, and this is talking about one of the very first revivals. It's in chapter 2 of Acts. After Jesus was resurrected, after the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and preached, and in, in verse... Um, 40, it says, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Well, that still applies to our generation. Verse 41 says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, to the church. And verse 42 talks about what happens after they were baptized, after they were added to the church. And it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. The word translated fellowship there is this same word, koinonia. It means that they were, <clears throat> they were continuing, and, and, and it gives four things that they were doing. They, they listened to the doctrine or the, to the apostles' doctrine. The apostles taught. They taught what Jesus said. They taught what they knew from the Old Testament. Because remember, the only Bible the apostles had was the Old Covenant at this point. They had nothing from the New Testament. But they, they taught what they knew. They also um, continued in the fellowship one with another, which was a huge part of the early church. In fact, it, it, it's unfortunate the, the very next place, and I'm not going to go there, but the very next place you see this, this particular word for fellowship, for communion, is in the book of Romans where Paul is exhorting 
all of the Gentile churches to, um, and thanking them for their communion with the church at Jerusalem because the church at Jerusalem is broke. They're poor. And, and this is the Roberts Doctrine. You can accept it or reject it. But I think part of the reason that the Jerusalem church was broke, if you read through the, the initial part of the book of Acts, Jesus said, I will come back like this in this same way, or the angels said that about Jesus. And the church at Jerusalem, I don't think that they thought, because before Jesus, resur or before Jesus ascended, they said, wait a minute, you're talking about going, ascending to heaven, what about your kingdom? They never saw the church. Church was a mystery. They had no idea the church age was coming, they had no idea that, it's, that, that it would last this long. And, or at least initially they didn't. Peter got that, that revelation later because in Peter's writing he said, there's going to be scoffers in the last day that say, oh, what about the Lord's return? You guys say he's coming and it's been a long time. So Peter eventually got the idea that this was going to take a while. But initially I believe that they thought he's coming back and it's going to be today. Maybe tomorrow. But it's not going to be long. And so what they did, they sold, started selling their stuff, and they just poured everything into the church, and they, they feasted, and they, they sat at the apostles' feet, and the apostles taught, and they fellowshiped. Well, it got to the point where they ran out of things to sell, and they ran out of money. Part of the reason Paul later in, in, in the church age said, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Because a lot of new Christians, the church at Thessalonica, were really worried that the raptures already happened. Jesus came back and we missed the boat. And he said, no, you haven't. But until he comes, carry on. Act like he's not coming back in your lifetime, but expect him to be back in the next day or two. You have to hold both of those thoughts. But because they didn't, they went broke. But Paul said... While they were communing together, the Gentile churches communed with them by taking up offerings and sending it to the church to help these people get back on their feet. Amen? But notice they also continued, not only in the doctrine of, of the, of the um, apostles and communion, but in the breaking of bread and in prayer. They did natural things and supernatural things. That's what the breaking of bread and prayer represent. They had meals, they did natural stuff, but they also spent their time praying. Amen? But this is the communion. Now, I want to read Acts 2.42. That's what I just read in the New King James. But I want to read it out of the message. In the message it says, They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. It interprets, and, and I'll be honest with you, I just realized in the last week, I'd always said the message was a paraphrase. And I found out I was wrong. I know that shocks everybody. But my wife shaking her head no. We'll talk later. But the message is not a paraphrase. It is an actual translation. It's a dynamic translation where they, rather than translating word for word, 
which is what the King James, New King James does. New American Standard is probably closer than any of those as a word-for-word -word translation. But if you ever tried to read the um, New American Standard or the American Standard, which that's based on, it's kind of hard to read. But the message is a translation. They just give it a dynamic flavor. They try to give you the thought behind the Greek rather than translating word for word. But this word koinonia, I love it. They translate it life together. That's what communion is. And when we take communion, we're, we're very familiar with life together. But we're, we're on a natural um, stage. But we're sometimes life together with the Holy Spirit, with communion, gets a little mysterious to us. Well, it's not. It's the same thing. Let's go to um, 1 Corinthians 11. But one of the, while you're going there, we're going to start in verse 1. While you're going there, <clears throat> one of the translations, remember, of, of this word koinonia in all of its forms is partnership. When you have a, a partnership, partnerships, both parties bring something to the partnership. It's very rare that you have a partnership with one party that doesn't have much or anything to give. Usually that's more charity than partnership. Now I know we, we have, I have said this, in fact I, I put it in, the, in the, the bulletin today. I had said for years, I've heard it preached for years, that when we come to Jesus, He has everything and we have nothing. All we have is sin, brokenness, and there is a truth to that. We are broken. We are sinful. And comparing what he's giving us in this partnership with what we give him, there's no comparison. Except for one small detail. Jesus, and, and this was in God's sovereignty, God decided this is how it's going to be. He decided that after Jesus came, lived, died, resurrected, that Jesus would bodily go back to heaven to wait on the Father's command to come back and get His church. But while we are waiting for Jesus to come back, there is no body, B-O-D-Y. There's no body of Christ on the earth except for us. So we bring one very essential element to this partnership with Jesus. And that is our physical bodies. He, God is here in the earth by the Spirit, and by the Spirit He can do whatever He wants to do. He is God. He's omnipresent. He, he's omniscient. He has the power. He could just appear to people and preach to people and, and explain things to people. But He chose in His divine wisdom to use people and because he decided this is how I'm going to do it, he is now required to use us to present the gospel. Now, it does not mean that, that the Holy Spirit won't move on people because the Bible says, lest the Holy Spirit move on an unbeliever, he cannot get saved. You can preach all day to an unbeliever. If the Holy Spirit doesn't motivate them to receive and open the, their eyes and open the windows of their heart to receive that, they can't get saved. Now the good news is the Holy Spirit will do that to every individual on the planet. It's not something that, that he picks and chooses. Well, I'll open this person's heart, but I'm not going to open this person. In fact, I will close that person's heart 
so they can't get saved because I created them to go to hell. No, the Bible's clear. God wants every human being saved. And He will open their heart if they will listen. Now, at some point, if they harden their heart and harden their heart and harden their heart, you lose, you lose the ability to make that decision because you will reject it. And, and part of the problem, because I, I had this attitude at one point in my life, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I know other people that have had it. It's like, well, I'm young, I'm going to live life, have fun. When I get old, then I'll get, in my words, I'll get religion. Because then life gets boring. That's what, you know, being a Christian is. It's being bored. Well, the problem with that attitude is, sometimes when you die, you don't have a millisecond to make a decision. When Gina died two and a half years ago, she was talking one second, she was flat on her face the next second. No warning. And I know of more than one person. You'll hear about people. They, have, they had sudden death heart attack. They're walking along. One minute they're having a conversation. Five seconds later, they're down, they're out. They don't get back up. They have notice, no time to make any decision to do anything. So we're not ever guaranteed the next second. So if you haven't made a decision, it's time to make it now. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Well, I could, I could re, rephrase that. Right now is the, is the moment to make salvation. Because you're not even promised later today, let alone tomorrow. Amen? But let's go back to, to um, communion. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. And this is Paul introducing uh, or, or talking to the, to the Corinthians. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So this is Paul saying, have I got the right one? I'm, I, I put down 11, excuse me. It's 1 thought this sounded awful lot like Paul's greeting. It's because it's the first chapter. Fat fingers, type wrong numbers. Besides, I wanted to see if Leslie was on her toes back there. Keep her hopping. Let's try 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus or, or the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. Notice here, Paul's, th this is a universal call. This is to the, to the church at Corinth but he's also, this will apply to anyone that's sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a universal call. He says, Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to me by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge. Notice, this is reflected in Paul's writings in, in Ephesians where he says, you have been given everything to pertaining to life and godliness. It's already ours. It's, we have it. Verse 6 says, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, 
eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the second coming, or the rapture. It's not having a revelation individually, although that is important. That's a technical reference to the rapture or the second coming. He says, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the further reference to that being the revelation is the appearing of Christ. But then he gets to this statement. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship there is the Greek word koinonia. It's communion. All of He said all of this. God's given you all of this. He, he's placed all of this in your hands because you have been called into communion. You have been called to use some of the other terms. You've called to be associated with Him, to be a community with Him, for joint participation, for intercourse, and its intimacy. We think of intercourse between a husband and wife. Well, that is being intimate physically, but he's talking about something even more intimate than that. He know, Jesus knows you more intimately than you know your husband or your wife. He knows you more intimately than you know you. And he's called us to be a partner with him in that intimacy. Now notice verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That what we preached on for several weeks. We need to start saying the same thing as a church, but we also need to start, we, the only way we can do that is we all say the same thing as the Word says. That's the only way we can get in agreement. Because if you ask me what the greatest flavor of ice cream is, I'll have a different flavor than you will. We'll never agree. If you ask me what the greatest food is, I'll tell you what, what my opinion is, but it's my opinion because I like my taste buds. And what, you, what your greatest food in the world is, is going to be different than mine. We will never agree on natural things, but we can agree on the Word. Because the Word's outside of us, it doesn't depend on my opinion, although my opinion is important, my prejudice towards the Bible is vitally important. And, and that's, that's prejudice in a good way, not a bad way. I approach the Bible with the prejudice that this is God speaking to me. For right now, and every word of it is true if he is indeed speaking it to me. And, and even if he's just speaking in a general principle, I need to figure out how that general principle applies to me for now. And that's my prejudice going into it. It's true, it's real, it's alive, and if I approach it any other way, I'm not going to get much out of it. How I approach it to the degree that I approach it in, in a certain way will be the degree that I get anything out of it. <clears throat> Let's go back to the start of verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, the only way we can have the same mind is if we have the mind of Christ, which is the Bible, which is primarily the New Testament, which is primarily Paul's writings because he had the greatest revelation of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. Verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you, 
Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. This is the Roberts translation. What do you mean you're of Christ? Do you think Christ is divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? If you ask most Christians, are you a Christian? They will first identify with their denomination. I'm Baptist, I'm Methodist, I'm Episcopalian, I'm full gospel, I'm word of faith, I'm whatever. We need to to get to the mindset that I'm a Christian. And being a Christian is all I ever want to be. I'm a Christian first, I'm I'm a full gospel Christian second, I'm a word of faith person second, which I never have figured out how being a word of faith person became a negative. And it is in a lot of people's eyes. Why would I not want to have faith in the word? And I realize to some people it means something different. But let me, let me read this. That I just read you verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's rebuking these people for having divisions. You can't have divisions if you're in communion with Christ. Because if I'm in communion with Jesus and Gina's in communion with Jesus, we're both in communion with the same entity, then we have to be in communion with one another. And, and you've seen this. Um, friends will, will get angry at one another. And suddenly, everybody has to divide up and take sides. I've seen it in every church split I've ever witnessed. And I've, unfortunately, I've witnessed a lot of them. Somebody will get offended, and suddenly everybody starts picking a side. They get offended at this person, and then I'm, I'm with them. I'm with them. Just be with Jesus and get over it. So you got offended. Whoop-de-doo. I get offended, you know, a dozen times a day, especially if I turn the TV on. And even if I don't turn the TV on, sometimes I, you know who I get offended at more than anyone else in the universe? Myself. I say things, think things, do things, and suddenly I'm thinking, are you an idiot? And then the next thought is, well, yes, you are. You just proved it. And you get offended at yourself. Now, you can even take that to the point where you get so self-condemned that you deny the reality of 1 John 1, 9, where Jesus says that if you, if you ask my forgiveness, I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I don't just forgive you, I cleanse you. And we, we, we have, and, and I know, and I'm, I'm not preaching against Catholics here when I say this, but we, we denigrate the Catholic faith because they believe in penance. And you don't have to do penance. Well, no, you don't, but believe me, most Protestants I know, they fully agree with the doctrine of penance. Because once they realize that they did something wrong and they ask God, they confess it as sin, they can't accept themselves until they felt bad about it for a long time. And they will pull out the whip and beat themselves and beat themselves and beat themselves mentally, sometimes even physically. They'll abuse their bodies. They won't eat. They'll cry. They'll get depressed. They'll do all kinds of things because I, was, I did something horrible. Yes, you did, but what you did is not bigger than the blood of Jesus. 
And if we're having communion with him, we need to get over it. I'm not making light of sin. What I'm making more of is Jesus' blood is greater than my sin. And if I truly recognize it as sin and repent and turn away and confess it, even if I am still struggling with it, because most sins don't just leave easily. They hang around and hang around. And I may some of them I've repented thousands of times. Let's just be honest. How many of you have a problem with gluttony? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't miss too many meals. But, I, but God has dealt with me that you need to start getting some things under control. And while I haven't lost a lot of weight, I do watch what I eat because I, I know God said, you have to be careful with this or you'll destroy your body. And if you destroy your body, guess what? You don't get to stay on the earth anymore. My reward is I get to go to heaven because I'm a Christian. But the problem is I'm also not going to get some of the rewards I could have earned by staying here and finishing my work. Now, let me read verse 9 to you. This is out of the message. We just read it. New King James says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship or the communion of His Son, Jesus Christ, and our Lord. Verse 9 from the, the message says, God, who got you started in this spiritual adventure. I love the way, I just, I'm, I'm falling in love with the message more and more. Love the way they phrase this. God got you started in this spiritual adventure, which is exactly what we're on. It's an adventure with challenges, with, with problems, with things to overcome. But it's an adventure. This next part, God who got you started in this spiritual adventure shares with us the life of His Son and our Master Jesus. That's communion. He shares with us the life of Jesus, who is, our, is His Son, but is our Master. Jesus is my brother, but He's also my boss. And it's, it, it's almost a paradoxical thing, because your brother, you, you, you live with them. And ladies, I'm not going to speak to sisters, because I don't, I've never had a sister, but sister to sister is probably a little different from brother to brother. Brother to brother, they're usually... Some sharp elbows exchanged over your childhood. Some fists to cuffs were exchanged. Some harsh words and probably a few bruised lips. Now, girls, I know they may not do that, but there's probably some hair pulling and some scratching going on. But you, you get so familiar with your brother that, Lord have mercy, you, you let mom and dad die and one sibling has to take over to settle the estate, you better wear some thick armor because you're going to get arrows from every direction. The only way to, to heal up from those is if suddenly everybody gets more than they thought they were going to get. But God forbid if they get less than they thought they were going to get, big problems. They don't, but even more than, than, than the getting is, you're my, you're my equal. How can you be the boss over me? You see this if you've ever worked a job where somebody who works with you suddenly gets promoted over you. It's hard to take orders from that person. Hard to take direction from that person. But God shares the life of Jesus with us. 
But notice it says, he will never give up on you, never forget that. Let me read that again in its entirety. God, who got you started in this spiritual adventure, shares with us the life of his son and our master Jesus. He will never give up on you, never forget that. Let me rephrase that. Never, never, never forget that Jesus will never give up on you. You cannot sin enough that Jesus will turn his back and say, you're reprobate, you're going to hell. Now, let me caution you, you can sin to the point where Jesus will allow Satan to destroy your body so you'll make heaven early. Unfortunately, we have examples of that in the New Testament in Paul's writings where Jesus told Paul, you turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he will be with us in the day of my return. Well, that's a tough, that's a tough, it's not a doctrine I really want to pull out of the promise box. It's not one I want to dwell on a lot of bit or a lot. It just kind of disturbs me. But it's there. We have to deal with it. Now, this can, this same word communion can mean business partners. I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but in Luke chapter 5, we're going to, let me just set the stage for you, and we're going to go to um, verse 9 to start with. But in verse 1 through through 8, this is where Jesus, this is before Peter, James, and John, were, were disciples of Jesus. He shows up where they are fishing on, on, on the, the lake. And he's got a crowd around him. Jesus does. Well, there's no, he doesn't have a microphone. So he uses natural uh, amplification. He, they're done fishing. They're over cleaning their nets. And he says, guys, can one of you take me in your boat? And he picks Simon, Peter. He says, Take me out in the water a little bit. If you've ever been on the water, people talk on the water. You can hear them sometimes miles away. Sound travels across water and even gets amplified by the water. So he pulled off from the shore, preached a while, and he knew by the Spirit, or maybe he just knew from natural means, I don't know, that they had not caught anything all night. on, On Lake Gennesaret, where they were, they have to, you have to fish. The water is so clear, you have to fish at night. Otherwise, they would throw their nets. The fish see the nets coming, they scatter. So at night, they throw their nets out. The fish can't see the net, they can catch. They f- fished all night. They got nada, nothing. They brought back empty boats, and they're repairing their nets. So it's daylight now. And Jesus is out in this boat with Peter and probably a couple of other guys. And he gets done preaching, and, he, and this is my thanks to Peter. You let me use your boat, here's your rental payment. Peter, throw your, your net out and get a catch. And Peter looked at him, and this is how I envision it. I don't know that this is exactly how, um, how it happened. But Peter looked at him, and this is what he said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. He's, why am I wasting my time throwing nets out here? It's daylight. We're not going to catch anything. We didn't catch anything all night. But then mid-statement, he hesitates. And what, how I envision this is he's facing Jesus talking to him, and he says, 
we fished all night. We got nothing. And Jesus is looking at him, and I, I just, I have it in my head, and I've never seen J Jesus face to face, but I, I, I have to imagine that Jesus is looking at you. His eyes had, had a power. When he looked at you, he got your attention. I've met people like that. They have so much charisma that when they walk in a room, man, the, the, the attention of the room is drawn to them. Most very well-known politicians have that trait. How much more the Son of God? And I have this feeling Paul is, or, or Peter is looking at Jesus. He says, look, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. But according to your word... Since you told me, I'm going to throw the nets out. I think Jesus' look convinced him. And he threw his nets out and suddenly his boat's about to go under because he's hauling out a, a load of fish. But in verse 9, this is what it says, and this is where I'm going with the business partners. <clears throat> he says, for he, he called for his partners, it says this up, up above. But in verse 9 it says, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. The word there, partners, is koinonia, where we get the word for communion. They were natural partners. Uh, Peter, James, and John. James and John were, were, were brothers. Peter was probably distantly related because these are small villages. You didn't move very far from home. But they're business partners, which tells me, and I've said this before, that most of the apostles weren't poor, poor men. They were fairly wealthy because Peter's not just running his own boat. He's got a fleet of boats. He's got business partners. So he's got to have some kind of money. He's got employees. That's part of what God's called us to with communion. He needs a partnership. He needs us to partner with Him the same way that, that Peter, James, and John were partners in the fishing business. And the whole point was, it's time to fish. And we got a big catch to fish. And it's more than one person can do. It's going to take a group to do it. That's why we cannot stand alone. Faith can't stand alone apart from all the other churches. We're all in the same, we're all in the same lake. We're fishing in the same pond. So we need all of these. We're not in competition. We should be in cooperation. We should be in communion. Now, it also is, is, is used sometimes to describe giving to the Philippian church. Now let's go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. This is, is Paul writing back to the Philippian church. You have to understand, Paul tells us this in the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul traveled, he, he made tents. He worked during the day, and while he's sewing tents together, he, he constructed tents and sold them. That's how he supported himself. But... And I'm sure that while he's doing his tent making, because most work in, in the first century is not like we look at work, where you're running a, a you're on an assembly line or you're doing something that requires so much thought and you're so intense and you got to work so fast because you're doing piecework, and if you don't get it done, you know you don't pick 
Pick your strawberries fast enough, you're not going to earn any money. So speed is of the essence. Life was lived at a much slower pace back here. Much slower. So slow that we would have probably considered most of these people somewhat lazy because they're not working as hard as we work. But at that pace, you could have conversations with people while you worked. And, and while uh, Paul was working, because, and I say that because they also did not work eight-hour shifts. And then go home watch TV for the evening. They worked from daylight to dark unless they were eating or using the facilities. They're working because that's what it takes to earn a living. So while he's working, he's talking, he's ministering, he's preaching to people. And then there were times when he just preached and forget about the work. We're not going to soak tents for a while. We're just going to preach for a while. But he had to work continually because nobody helped support him. Except for this church at Philippi. And where it says here in verse 14 of Philippians 4, Nevertheless you have done well that you shared in my distress. Paul's in prison at this point writing back to the church at Philippians. He said, you, you have done well that you communed in my distress. You koinoniaed in my distress. And in sending Paul money to help him out while he's in prison to provide things for him, because he's in prison, but if it's like no different then than it is today. You can go to prison poor, you can go to prison rich. Going to prison rich, you get a few, you know, you can bribe people. You can get some, some extra stuff. If you got nothing, you're a poor person, you just get whatever they provide you. And life's going to be harder. Well... They sent Paul money, and in sending him money, they shared in what Paul was, was doing. They also, I sentence that says he, they shared in his distress. Um, I believe that, that they were also praying for him, and they were standing in faith for him because they knew what the conditions were. Because the conditions, there was a time when Paul was in prison where he was in a house and he was chained to a Roman soldier. But towards the end, when Nero was emperor, Paul was in a pit. There, were, there was more than one imprisonment for Paul. Sometimes he was comfortable. Sometimes he was uncomfortable. This particular time was right at the end of Paul's life, right before they chopped his head off. He was not comfortable. He was down in a pit. Now, back up to, to Philippians chapter 1. And this is Paul, Paul speaks to the Philippian church a little more about this. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of, of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The word fellowship there, again, it's the word koinonia. For your communion with me in the gospel. You shared in my ability and my, my taking the gospel everywhere. Notice, and this is a, this is a verse 6 is a verse we quote all the time, give it to people all the time. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying with, with certainty that part of the condition of Jesus completing the good work in you is you fellowshipping and communing with someone in the gospel. 
But I am going to tell you, it, it don't hurt. Part of what God has called us to do is to share our wealth, to share our money. He specifically told all of us, you need to tithe to your church. You need to put a tithe into the storehouse that you get fed out of. And then he's also said there are, there are places where you give. You give offerings be above and beyond the tithe. Now, I know for some of you, tithing is a, is a stretch, let alone to think, i got to give offerings besides. No, you don't have to. You get to. And the reason I say you get to is because that's where the real blessing starts coming in. Is when you start, you look at the tithe, well, this is the base. This is what I give my church. But then I got all this disposable income. I can do a couple of things. I can build extra barns or I can sow more. Well, the farmer that wants to grow his enterprise keeps buying land and sowing more crops. As a believer, we keep sowing more and more of our goods to further the gospel. And even if I don't get it back in this life, oh, I get a big return when I get to heaven. But now keep in mind, Jesus said, you don't give up anything in this life that I don't pay it back a hundredfold plus eternal life. So I get blessed on both ends of that deal. But notice he says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, just that it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Part of the reason Paul had them in his heart was because they communed with him. They were supporting him financially. He's going to say that over in chapter 4. You guys are helping me to stay out here and do the call that God's put, me, put on my heart. He says, I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Part of their witness to Paul that they are partaking of his grace is they are partakers. They are sharing. They are communing. They are partnering with him. That's the word koinonia. Now, for us, when we take communion, what we call communion, in the modern day, you know, Jesus said it, uh, Paul, Paul reported it in, in Corinthians. He said, as often as you do this, as often as you take the body and the blood of Christ, do it in remembrance of me. I want to cover two things. The blood, which is represented by the juice, and the bread, which is the bread of life. This, is, this isn't just physical bread and physical juice. But if it was just physical, I wouldn't partake of it for, for one good reason. Part of what the Lord's dealt with me about, about my diet, is I eat almost no carbs. I don't get any sugar. I don't get to eat treats. I don't eat bread. I don't eat potatoes. I don't eat anything that has carbs in it. I eat meat and vegetables that are low-carb vegetables. And I love it, and I thrive on it. I, the doctors have told me I'm a, I'm a type 2 diabetic. I haven't had a, an out-of-control blood sugar for years because I'm on the diet that God told me to do. And I've had Christians tell me, oh, I'm terrified that you're eating all that toxic meat. And I want to look at them and say, who made that cow? Who made that pig? Oh, but pigs are unclean. Wait a minute, Jesus told Peter, here's a net, here's all these unclean animals, don't call them unclean if I call them clean. Well, that was just a metaphor, brother. No, that was a whole sheet full of unclean animals. And we can eat pigs, we can eat shrimp, and I eat as much of them as I can. 
But, but my point is, this is beyond just physical food. It's, it's symbolic. Blood is life. Leviticus chapter 17, and I'm going to read a few verses, but I want you to notice the role of blood here. In Leviticus 17, we're going to start in verse 10. Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. It's a pretty dire statement by God in the law. Don't eat meat that has blood in it. If you're going to slaughter in a kosher manner, you, today they would knock the, the animal unconscious so it feels no pain. But in the ancient days, they just tied the animal up and they slit its throat. And they would hang it up by its rear feet and let all the blood drain out of that animal before they, before they butchered it. Modern butchery, they don't do that. They just kill them with an air hammer, start bu the butchering process. That's why when you buy steaks or anything in the, the um, um, grocery store, they've always got those absorbent pads under them because there's all kinds of blood that leaks out of them. Thank God we are redeemed from the curse of the law. Otherwise, we'd all be cursed. Now, verse 11, the reason he said this, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. When they brought a, a, an animal for sacrifice, they would slit its throat, collect all that blood, put it on the altar and offer the blood as a sacrifice because they're offering the life of the animal in, their, in place of their sin and in place of their own blood. He said, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Part of the reasoning behind this in a lot of pagan um, um, cultures, they and you've, if you've ever watched... Um, the movie Dances with Wolves, which is about as far removed from actual history as any movie you will ever see. That's not how the Plains Indians lived. They weren't in, in harmony with nature. That's why they were nomads, because they would live in a place until they despoiled it, and they did spoil it. They ruined it, and then they would go to another place and camp there for months or years while this other place recovered. Why you have to have a nomadic life? Because you ruin the environment you are in. Even primitive people ruin their environment. We're no different as modern people. We're just a little more efficient at it. But if you watch that movie, when the Indians had a habit, and most primitive cultures did, when they, when they killed an animal hunting it, they would open that animal's um, intestines and they would pull the liver out and they would eat the liver raw right then and there. 
because they are partaking of the life of that animal. Especially for the Indian, the Plains Indians, they're taking the strength of that buffalo into them. That's why they would eat it with the blood in it. I am drawing the, the life force out of this strong animal and it will make me strong. God said, I don't want you drawing the life force out of any animal. The only animals, the only life force of these animals, that life force is to be offered to me as a sacrifice for your sins. The only life force you are allowed to draw from is my life force. That's why he forbid it. The weird part about this, if you look at John 6, this was after Jesus fed the 5,000, um, five loaves, three little fishes, or maybe reversed. I can always get those two numbers mixed up. But this is a little boy's lunch. It's like some sardines and some, some Ritz crackers. You know, when you see this pictured in, in, in religious literature, you always see these huge, huge big loaves of bread. A little boy's not eating a loaf of bread. There's a few crackers and a few little sardines, a few little dried fish. But he multiplied it. Jesus did and fed this multitude. Well, the next day, this whole multitude showed back up. We got free food yesterday. I'm hungry today. Maybe you're different, but I get hungry every day. There are days when I eat a meal and my, my confession after I get done is I will never, I won't eat anything for a month. Next day... Right on target. I'm ready to eat again, no matter how much I ate the day before. But Jesus, after, while he's confronting the crowd because they're wanting more food, in John 6, 53, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Jesus, a Jew, an observant Jew, a perfect Jew, just said to a bunch of Jews, you got to be cannibals and drink my blood. They left him by the multitudes. Everybody walked away to the point where Jesus looked at the disciples. He said, guys, you all want to leave? And the answer was yes, they did. But I think it was Peter, because it's always Peter. Peter's got the mouth in the group. Peter looks at him and said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. Translation, what you just said shocks me, and I really want to run for my life. Because I know what Leviticus says. And you just called us to a life of cannibalism and drinking blood. What about the law of Moses? What is going on here? My head's about to explode. But so far you've proved that you have life in your words and I don't understand it, but I'm sticking where I am even though I don't understand it right now. But Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm not talking about my physical body. I'm not talking about my physical blood. His blood is going to be shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But... That's not the blood we partake of. The blood is His life force. It's the Spirit of God. And we're called into communion. We're called into fellowship with His life, not with His physical blood. I had somebody say one time, I heard it. I, I, I couldn't believe I heard it, but I did hear it. They said, if you could have collected all of Jesus' blood and give yourself a transfusion of Jesus' physical blood you would live for, forever. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, if, 
If he's your blood type, it might not kill you. But if he's your blood type, if he's not your blood type, if, if you're type A and he's type uh, B, it's probably going to kill you. What they were doing was they, they, they took the magical position of Jesus' blood. Jesus' physical blood is a magical uh, substance that brings life. There's no magic in Jesus' blood. It is still on, on the altar in heaven, and it cries out 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, forgiveness, forgiveness, mercy, grace. It's always crying that. The same way Cain or Abel's blood is crying out of the earth for vengeance on Cain because he was a murder victim. It's, it's talking about the life force of Jesus. And he says, you have to partake with me. You have to partner with me. You have to join with me. That's why Paul uses as a, as a metaphor, as an example, husband and wife. We don't become one person. We do become one flesh. But we don't become one person. And if, if you believe it, we've been married for, for 37 years. I'd do a quick calculation there. We've been married for 37 years. And to this day, I will say things occasionally and she'll look at me and she says, I can't believe you said that. I would have never thought that about you. Now, it doesn't happen as often now as it did at the beginning of our marriage. I surprised her a lot back then. In fact, there were times when I think I surprised her and I think the thought that went through her head was, wow, if I'd have known that before we got married, we might not have got married. But we still, we still surprise one another. And I don't care if you're married for 60, 70 years. You will occasionally surprise one another because you're different people. But we are still joined. And I will tell you, I have never met anyone that's been married for a long period of time that you don't have the same root core values. Now, I know, I have it in Scripture, God sits in the heavens and laughs, and one of the things He laughs about is putting the two of us together. Because if my favorite ice cream is, is butter pecan, hers is going to be something with chocolate and peanut butter. And we will never agree on flavors of ice cream. We'll never agree. If I look at something and I think, well, that's black, she'll look at it and say, no, that's white. Natural things, we are so different. It, and, and believe me, it grates at times. You know, the old saying, it, God's smoothing out our lives by letting us grate against one another. Well, in natural things, it's just after 37 years, you realize I ain't ever going to change her. She's on the dark side, and I can't bring her over to the butter pecan side of life where things are just tasty. You know, she still thinks that you put peanut butter on everything, and it makes it better, and I just want to... But when it comes to core values, there's not a sliver of light between us. Not the first sliver of light. If you came to me and you said, Brother John, I, I, I really don't want to say this, but man, I saw your wife down at the bar and she was hanging out with some guys. My reply would be, well, she must have a twin because my wife's not down at the bar. She's not hanging out with a bunch of guys. Well, how would you know? Because I know my wife. I know her values. I know, I know who she is at her core. And so I, I know what to expect from those standpoints. We need to have that 
kind of a relationship with Christ that I know exactly what He thinks every time because I am so united with Him that yes, I don't know what Jesus' favorite ice cream is. I suspect it's butter pecan. But it may not be. You know, I do know when you get to heaven, you're going to have, you know, two choices of drink, water and coffee. That's all there is. And most of it's going to be coffee. Not many people will drink water. But my point is, I still, whether the natural things are there, it's the spiritual values that are important. And I need to be joined and commune with him. And then the other side of it is the bread of life. And this is John, John chapter 6. We were in verse 53, but I need you to back up a little bit. And I'm just going to read through this and make a couple of comments and we'll be finished. And we'll take communion. But in John 6, starting in verse 22, it says, On the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea, this is right after he fed the 5,000, saw that there was no other boat there except the, that the one which his disciples had entered, that Jesus had not entered the boat. They're surprised that he's still there. Um, verse down, go down to verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes. And that's not just about food, that's about anything. If you're working to get a better car or a better house, you're working for the wrong stuff. Nothing wrong with nice cars, nothing wrong with nice houses. But if that's your motivation for, for laboring, then your motivation's wrong. Because that car that has that new smell and just drives so perfectly will be in a junk pile in 20 years. But laboring for eternal things, partnering with Jesus for eternal values, that will last forever. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Translation, believe in Me. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? This is a man who just fed 5,000 men, not counting their families. So you're going to crowd of 25 to 30,000 people on a little boy's lunch. And they're saying, What miracle will you do to prove what you just said? Boy, if that doesn't just seal the stupidity of humans. But they bring up Moses. He said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He shall give them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the bread from heaven. Then He said to him, and then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Similar thing he said to the woman at the well. He said, I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. 
And she immediately thought, great, I don't have to come to the well every day and get criticized by these other women. He wasn't talking about physical water or physical bread. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, look, and just in a couple of verses, we ended in verse 40, verse 53, he's going to look at them and get a little more pointed and said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're going to run like their hair was on fire. Why? Because he's saying the whole point of this is me. Me. Not the bread you ate yesterday. Not the, 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 the sacrifice that you're going to have at the, at the altar when you take your sacrifice to the temple. This whole thing is about me. I came to do the will of my Father. The only reason I came. Our response to what He did should be, I am only here to do the will of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will, result, will, will reveal that to me. And when he reveals that to me, then I can do his will and fulfill his will so that those that he's called can be raised up at the last day. The whole point of being in this life, the whole point of being a Christian is so that when God wraps this thing up, there's a huge crop and I'm sitting there thinking, I preached the gospel to that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And I preached the gospel to this one, and that one preached it to millions. And if I don't have the ability to preach, I took some of my money, and I allowed someone else to stay on the field that had the ability to preach. And everything that they, have, that they earned through God, I get credit for that too. Why? Because I'm communing with them. I'm partnering with them. That's why, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I have changed my opinion. I don't like the idea of church membership anymore. I would rather call it church partnership. Because we're, we're, we're not members, we're partners together. I can't do the work. Pastor Chuck can't do the work. The elder board can't do all the work. As a group, we can do the work. But only as a group and only as... That's why Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their divisions. You, can't, you cannot accomplish something if you're fighting with one another. Think of the, 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 the movie Ben-Hur, if you've, if you've seen that, and I'm dating you, I know. All of those guys down in, the, in that galley who were rowing, they had a guy counting time. Why? Because they had to get in a rhythm because everybody had to row in unison. And when they all rowed in unison, that ship moved, and it moved pretty quickly. If they all decided, well, you know, I don't, I, I live my life to the beat of a different drummer. Suddenly, oars are moving, the ship ain't moving. You want a better example? Your heart beats in rhythm. You know what they call it when your heart goes out of rhythm? They call it ventricular fibrillation. Known by another name, dead. 
When your heart muscles quit rhythmic beating, they quit cooperating, every little fiber decides, I'm going to do my own thing. I'll beat when I want to beat. I don't beat when the, when the, 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 the time comes. I, just, I, I, I live my life to the beat of a different drummer. You're going to die. As a church, we have to say the same thing, which is the Bible. We have to function together. We have to commune together. And as we commune with God and He communes with us and we commune with one another, then suddenly things start working. Things start progressing. And the greatest lubricant of all that, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we walk in love. We walk in love. Then we don't get offended. Then we can cooperate and help one another. That's what this is about. The, the, the body and the blood of Christ, it's not about bread and wine. It's about the physical representation of Jesus' body that was broken for us. He actually came from heaven. He had no body. He was a spirit. He was the second person of the Godhead. And what did he do? He sent an angel. The father sent Gabriel to Mary and told Mary, You are blessed above all women. You're going to bear the Messiah. And she looked at Gabriel and said, Yeah, I don't understand how that happened. I haven't had intercourse with a man. I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have babies. Just doesn't happen. But, love that but, but according to your word, let it be so. She believed that Gabriel represented God and Gabriel spoke God's word to her and she communed with those words and accepted those words. And when she accepted those words, she became pregnant at that moment. And the second, of the second person of the Godhead moved into her body and was confined to a single cell. The reason I know that Jesus was the, the, that Christ was already in there, even when it was just a single cell, is a few months later when Mary went to see Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who was a little bit farther along than Jesus was, John the Baptist leapt in, Mary, or in um, Elizabeth's womb because he recognized the Messiah. Well, that ought to tell you, that, you know, that fetuses are children. They're not just clumps of cells. But then that body took on blood. He had a heart. At 21 days, that heart started beating, just like every fetus does. It, starts, it has a heart that beats. It pumps blood. It's alive. When he was born, he took on physical life. And he grew. He stayed at home. He did what mom and dad said. He, he learned. He went to the temple at 12. That's his bar mitzvah. And he was examined by the, the leaders of, of the, the nation of Israel. And he confounded them all as a 12-year-old. I've met some smart people. I've met too many 12-year-olds that can confound PhDs. But that's exactly what Jesus did. But then when mom and dad said, Jesus, you've got to come home. He said, yes, ma'am, and he went home. And he stayed at home and he did his father's work. He was a carpenter until he was 30. 
And then when he got baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, God called him into his ministry. God said, okay, now it's time for you to start ministering around here and bring my people in. And he got baptized in the Spirit. He got anointed for ministry. And suddenly you saw miracles in his life. That, was the, that wasn't just the life of the second person of the Godhead. That was the life of the Holy Spirit coming out of him. The very same life that we have. While we take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, what we commune with is God. And when you commune with, with Jesus, the physical representation of God, you also commune with the Father and with the Spirit. They're one. It's not like, well, you know, I, I can deal with Jesus, I can deal with the Father, but I don't want any of that Holy Ghost stuff. As you get in that Holy Ghost stuff, man, that gets a little crazy for me. Well, that's like saying I want the water, but I don't want the wet. The Holy Spirit comes with the Father and comes with the Son because they are all one. And when we commune with the body of Christ, we recognize He was a man. We, we commune with the, the blood of Christ, we recognize He is God. He wasn't God. There's no past tense to it. He was God. He is God. He will always be God. And when you get that, you get all of Him. You get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a packet deal, package deal. And as we commune with Him, we become more like Him. And as we become more like Him, we reflect Him. And that means when, when you have a need, you go to Him and say, Lord, this is my need. We're partners. I don't have this. I think you do. I need it. You know what a partner does? It's on its way. If Gina and I are partners, she's out in the car, she calls me and says, car quit. I need help. Okay, help's on the way. Either I'm getting in the car and I'm going to go help her or I'm calling a, a wrecker and getting the wrecker there to help her. Somehow I'm going to move and get help to her because we are partners in this. When I have a need, Jesus will supply that need. When he has a need, he expects me to supply that need. And he needs a mouth and he needs feet and he needs hands. He needs someone to go lay hands. He needs someone to go speak. He needs people to go and do the ministry. And he expects us to be in partnership with him. Now, if we expect him to meet all of our needs, then he needs to be able to expect that we will help meet his needs. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.